of your eye. Huddled in the darkest shadows of imagination, it waits. Now is the time to face the fear. Welcome to Horror Lasagna. Embrace the trepidation. Did you enjoy Event Horizon? We'll talk more <laughs> about it. <laughs> but okay, so you know, we'll just start there. We'll just boom. Sure. Our bonus episode. So, did I enjoy Event Horizon? You asked. That's the thing. Was it horrible and bad? It's 25 years old, so that shows. But it was definitely a Hollywood blockbuster. We want you to buy lots of popcorn and see it in the theater. That's what it was. It it was every step of the way. But in the end, it made it predictable. It it got a little boring for me because I know what's going to happen. I know what they're going to do. Oh, 30 seconds have gone by in the movie. You know, I mean, it was that it was very formulaic. And being that old, the special effects did not hold up. So it jarred a little bit watching some of them. Yeah. And like you mentioned with Europa Report, how people lauded it because it was so realistic. This one is so unrealistic when you really think about it. So well, I've got notes for all of that. So overall, overall. I, I really prefer our lower budget, lesser known movies most of the time. This yeah. particular one. Now, I'm all for a big blockbuster, Fast and the Furious. I want to see that blowing up in front of my face all over the place. But, you know, some movies, eh, not as much. Armageddon. Now, that's the funny thing because Armageddon came out about this same time. And I really loved Armageddon. And I still love Armageddon. And you can't say it's like anything new. You knew what was going to happen in the movie. They're going to save Earth. And no more was, scientifically viable either. No, it's not. Uh, <laughs> but I think the difference is this was trying to be sci-fi like, but Armageddon never tried to say we're not we're we are an adventure action flick, but just set in space. They didn't Correct. shy away from that. I think that's the difference. If I know it's an action adventure flick, I'm okay with all the suspension of disbelief through the whole thing. That's the point, escape reality. This was sci-fi trying to be sci-fi. And it, w- it probably would have worked a lot better as a Star Trek episode. Sure. In fact, there was basically a Doctor Who episode that did the exact same thing. Which is interesting because there's a Pertwee in the movie. There is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is a big budget, major Hollywood film. It was a, a UK-US collaboration from 1997. It had a $60 million budget and it had a $52 million take. So it missed it by that much. much. At the time, it was directed by Paul Anderson. At the time, Kurt Russell told Paul Anderson to ignore how poorly the film did in theaters. And Kurt Russell said, forget about what this movie is doing now. In 15 years time, this is going to be the movie you're glad you made. Now, that being said, despite what you or I might think of it, this movie is a cult classic. Oh, yeah, it definitely is. There's a lot of people who love this film. Which is interesting. So, yeah. Because, because yeah. it's interesting because there wasn't anything in the plot that was super cool, unique, and different. The, every part of it was stolen from everything else that you've ever seen. It was just rehashed from other stuff. Yeah. 
and at that, it still garnered three nominations for awards and one win at well, the Brussels International Festival of Fantasy Film. There's something to be said for familiarity. There is. So as we go through this, so this is a compare and contrast episode. The actual synopsis of Event Horizon and all that stuff that we usually do is going to be a lot briefer. You can figure out the plot pretty easy. <laughs> what you're going to find is that you'll see as we go through this why it ended up like it did. So it was written by a guy named Phil Eisner. The biggest thing on Phil Eisner's list was Firestarter 2. So it's not like he has a whole lot of high-end credits to his name when he was writing this. And he said he wanted to write The Shining in space. Okay. At least I could see that. Yeah. His original concept was to have a ship that was haunted, and he wanted it haunted by aliens of some sort because of the way that it traveled. He also, for all you uber nerds out there, he was a big Warhammer 40K fan. Wow. And this concept actually comes up in Warhammer 40K because when you travel, take your ship through these wormhole things to get from one point to the other, if your ship's not properly shielded, these evil spirits will possess the people on board your ship. And then, you know, the people are now like, uber violent they don't listen to you that kind of thing i've never played warhammer 40k that's just what i've came across while i was researching this okay it was directed by paul anderson now paul anderson has some credits to his name and i'm going to list them and when you list them think about what you were saying about how this is a big hollywood blockbuster (laughs) his first big hit the one that actually got him the permission to do this movie was he did mortal kombat the first move, first one way back when. Yep. Wow. Yep. Okay. Okay. He also did Alien versus Predator. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Resident Evil, Resident Evil Afterlife, Resident Evil Retribution, Resident Evil The Final Chapter. Okay. So th- I can see Event Horizon fitting in within that bunch of movies. Yeah, exactly. He turned down the X Men to do this movie. For, because for, Mortal for Kombat, good or bad I don't even, for both, I don't know. <laughs> I don't recall Mortal Kombat being some massive blockbuster hit, but apparently it was. Oh yeah, the game people—they—it's they, still one of those. It's a cult thing, but the new one was actually really good. I liked the new one. And the success of that is why Paramount came to him and said, "Do you want to do this?" Now, this is a Paramount production. So it had a whole lot of power behind it. The cast that turned this movie down included Arnold Schwarzenegger, Tommy Lee Jones, Bruce Willis, Bill Pullman, Jeremy Irons, and Amy Brenneman. All these people wanted to be in it. And all of them either passed because they had something else going on or just didn't want to be involved. in it. Wow. So to give the guy a, a little more credit, Paramount wanted the, wanted this movie to come out. So they offered it to him. He agreed to do it. He didn't like the idea of the ghost in the ship. He wanted it to be something more kind of demonic behind it. So he basically, and if you're wondering, the visit in this ship is the ship, and the visit in this movie is the ship visits hell. And Paramount rushed the production because what they wanted was they wanted a blockbuster film to come out before Titanic. All politics. (laughs) Yep. 
and Titanic was super delayed. So they needed something to fill that space. So he only had four weeks to wow. edit the entire thing. And wow. he edited the whole thing working seven days a week over those four weeks. It only took 10 minutes start to finish for him to fit, to actually do all the filming and the post-production. It was now, filmed on a. Now, I was just going to say, now I will say if I had seen this 25 years ago, when I was younger and movies were different, I might've thought different about it. I will give it that much, oh, yeah. but, but con- considering all the movies that have come in that 25 years, <laughs> this one wasn't as impressive to me. He found uh, a group of construction people who would bi- build the sets for this. They found a unit just outside of London and they used seven sound stages at once. So these guys came on and in four weeks built all the sets they needed to shoot this on seven sound stages. Oddly enough, the other half of that facility that they didn't take up was taken up by Eyes Wide Shut. Wow. So, okay. <laughs> very different films depending on which side of the wall you're on. <laughs> if you got really drunk the night before and wandered onto the wrong set, you could be an eye opener there. <laughs> yeah. The cast, I tried to pick out just people who had like notable stuff in their background thinking it'd be one or two, but no, the cast Lawrence Fishburne is in this and he's got 129 credits. He was in apocalypse. Now mash trapper, John MD, the color purple nightmare on Elm street three Pee Wee's playhouse. I had no idea he was cowboy Curtis on Pee Wee's Pee Wee's playhouse. I don't remember that either. Boys in the hood, the matrix mission impossible Four. he was the voice of the silver surfer in fantastic four rise of the silver surfer. I remember Uh, that. John Wick 2 and 3 and Ant-Man Wasp. Yes. <laughs> and people love Lawrence Fishburne, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sam Neill plays Weir. He's got 147 credits. Not quite as many that you're going to know here in the States. The Hunt for Red October, Jurassic Park 1 and 3. Uh, the TV series Merlin. He mm. was in Peaky Blinders. He was in Thor Ragnarok. And I love this. This is one of the things that I love about Thor Ragnarok. There's the scene where they're doing the play. Yeah. About how awesome Loki is. And in that, Loki is being played by, oh, come on, born identity guy, Matt Damon. And he, he's not even credited right. for it. And uh, Sam Neill is playing Odin in that. Yeah. So they have these big name actors and they don't even mention them in the credits. Yeah. You're not even uh, worthy. <laughs> he was also in the Peter Rabbit movies and he's been on Rick and Morty. So. That's Sam Neill. He plays Weir. Kathleen Quinlan plays Peter. She's been in 105 credits, including American Graffiti. And uh, I never promised you a Rose Garden Independence Day. She was in The Doors. That made the list because I've just been watching that lately. Wow. Apollo 13. She was in the remake of The Hills Have Eyes from 2006. Yeah. To go along with horror. And she was also in Horn, which if you haven't seen, that's an interesting little right. uh, thing. And speaking of the movie Antlers just came out, you'd probably enjoy it if you haven't seen it. I have not yet. It it was actually pretty good. Jason Isaacs plays DJ. He's got 49 credits, including Armageddon, The Patriot, Black Hawk Down, Resident Evil. He's Lucius Malfoy from the Harry Potter movies. Didn't even recognize. Oh, yeah. Oh, I know. When I made that connection, he was in Elektra. He was in, he does a voice in Avatar The Last Airbender. He's Admiral Zhao. He was also in Fury, Star Wars Rebels, and Castlevania. He does a lot of voiceover work, apparently. Yeah. 
Sean Pertwee Smith, he was in 120 credits. You're not going to know any of them except the young Indiana Jones Chronicles and The Walking Dead. But he gets a mention because he's John Pertwee's son and John Pertwee, the second Doctor Who. Yeah, you got to give him props just for that. I, I did recognize him. So it might have been from Young Indy, but there might be something else on the list that I've seen him. Because I, I did recognize his face. In my notes, when he actually comes on and speaks, I'm like, oh, my God, he sounds just like his dad. <laughs> There you go. Peter Marnicker plays Killpack. Uh, he's got 130 credits, including Flash Gordon, Labyrinth, Young Indiana Jones Chronicles again, Judge Dredd, did the voiceover for one of the dwarves in The Witcher 1 and 3, and he did voiceover in Dark Souls 1 and 2. So wow. he's big into the video game. The original movie was 130 minutes long. Okay. Let that sink in for a minute. That's two hours and 10 minutes. Yeah. Which doesn't seem uh, odd nowadays. Back then, right. it, it was <laughs> such a big deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two years yeah. later. <laughs> the original was 96 minutes, and the cult fans of this movie would love to see the director's cut, but they're out of luck because all of the footage was stored somewhere. All of the masters were stored somewhere, not unlike Doctor Who, those ones from the 60s, and it destroyed the net masters. It's been rumored there is a director's cut DVD out there that somebody had, but it's only video quality, and Anderson hasn't gotten a hold of it yet. So whether or not they try and do something with that, who knows? Uh, now, but, I, would, I would actually be, be interested in going back and seeing a two-hour and ten-minute version of this movie, just seeing if it changes it. Oh, yeah, because the original director's cut was NC-17. Oh, okay. So it did not. It didn't make it. It went over the line. Apparently, <laughs> this so. was close in a few spots. The movie was an inspiration to Dead Space, the video game, and Doom Three. Both of those games, the developers have come out and said this movie was a big inspiration. And in fact, ironically, in the very opening shot, Sam Neil is there, and his blinds go up, and there's this sound when the blinds go up, and the sound Ooh. is was taken from the doors opening from the original doom movie. Um, yeah, doom game, doom game. So. yeah I, I saw that and i even yeah. said this movie the story could be the prequel to the doom game i didn't know that and i said that and yeah then i also said but it also sounds like they mashed it with hellraiser because by the end there's a lot of hellraiser in it too ironically ironic you say that because clive barker actually worked on this film oh wow crazy well they were developing <laughs> they claimed that the film seemed cursed the spacesuits were 65 pounds Oof. so inflexible the, uh, the actors couldn't actually sit down while they were wearing them and there would be days where they would be in them all day long so they wow. had this like hoist type thing that would come in and they'd hook you in it so you wouldn't actually have to be standing there the whole time <laughs> um but they would have back problems when they were done shooting this. If you ever hear any of the actors talk about this, none of them speak about it in a good manner. They're not critiquing the story or anything like that. They're just always, yeah, we wouldn't want to do that again. <laughs> the shot where there's the fire and the guy comes out of the fire, that actually caught the soundstage on fire. <laughs> and in one of the scenes, the special effects went off. There was an explosion and Sam Neill was too close and it knocked him down and knocked him unconscious. Oh, jeez. Wow. So, yeah. 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 So, the movie opens up. They start off with a timeline right off the bat, which is a mistake for sci-fi movies. 
always. Because they say we'll have people on the moon by 2015. That's gone. It says, where is our moon base? (laughs) In my notes. (laughs) Yeah. They're off by probably 10, 15 years. 2025 was NASA's idea for putting people back to the moon with having something developed over the next five years from that span. Commercial mining, they say, happened in 2032. I don't know if that would ever happen. Yeah. Earthlings are very protective of the moon. And then they have the development of warp drive based spacecraft by 2040, which, yeah, (laughs) we're on the point of almost going back to the moon and we're nowhere near having warp drive based (laughs) spacecraft. Of course, they had the craft, they sent it out, it disappeared for seven years, and then suddenly shows back up. Oh, yeah, the science in this, I'm going, oh, my God, can't they do something new and different? Yeah. If you talk about warp drive kind of technology in sci-fi, you usually have three different kind of concepts. I wrote the same stuff down. I know exactly what I was writing down for the notes. You've got people who completely ignore the speed of light and just say, we've got a ship that goes really fast. Like Star Wars. Star Wars had hyperdrive. Yes, they did. They did. And technically hyperdrive, you're entering into kind of a sub-dimensional pocket that you're moving through and then you're popping back out of it, which is very similar to the concept of what they have here. Yes. And it's the same concept that uh, Stargate used and lots of others. And, And I'm not getting on that. I'm all for a good story that doesn't belabor all the science. Not everybody wants a documentary in their movie. Yeah. And, and I'm good with that. I just got to laugh because if this story had been written in 1950s, it, I probably would have thought better of it because then it was cool to think of those things. But when it's almost 2000 and that's what they're still. Yeah. Like, okay. And going back to the whole techie thing, Star Trek had a lot of science people involved with it. And the physics behind Star Trek, when they're traveling at warp speeds, they're actually developing a bubble around that protects the ship as it goes into high-end speeds. And so they're like the third form of warp travel. They're not actually going to a different dimension. They're basically building a little pocket for themselves to break those rules. But they actually do have the wormhole concept when they do Deep Space Nine. So they have both of them in that one. Yeah, that, because they're right on the edge of that wormhole. And then right. Voyager gets sucked up into the wormhole, into the yep. whatever quadrant they went to. After they had their little timeline, they cut to this scene of stuff floating around on board the um, event horizon. And the debris that's floating around was supposed to have a lot of nastier stuff in it. There's supposed to be like a bloody tooth. And like dismembered fingers, that kind of thing, floating around amidst all the other junk. That stuff got cut. There was a really interesting thing that happened because of the time that was happening. They had an entire second location with other people filming, specifically for that whole video log orgiistic scene. A lot of the stuff they shot at the second site, Anderson wasn't there for it. They cut all that stuff. Because they did things like bring in amputees and porn stars for like 
the whole blood-soaked orgy scenes when they did the initial showing. People were like, yeah, no, that's a little too far. That's why all of that stuff got cut out. And then okay. it- that John Malkovich movie that is the, the Shadow of the Vampire or something, where it's like the documentary of Nosferatu and that it was right, a real vampire. Fictionalized, yeah. Somebody needs to make the movie that's the making of Event Horizon with some of this yeah. stuff. It, it could be a sci fi comedy. It's just that sounds wonderful. I love that. <laughs> yeah. All right, bring in the amputees and the yeah. porn stars. Sam Neill, there's this shot right after that of Sam Neill waking up after having this bad dream or this dream of his wife, who we get the idea she's no longer around. Then it pans back and he's actually on this orbital thing above the space above Earth. That opening scene lasts for 45 seconds and it took a third of their entire special effects budget. Whoa. Yeah. Jeez. I, I really got to the producers in this, I really got to question some of their judgment. <laughs> exactly. Uh, right away, that opening sequence that went on, I'm like, okay. So either A, he has mental health issues. So we're going to question everything that happens throughout the movie, like those type of horror movies do, or B, he's actually got some connection with this event horizon that left and that there's some otherworldly thing going on, blah, blah, blah. I was leaning toward the mental health thing. That just seems like it is. And it still arguably could be part of it too. But if well, it was here, caused by- both right. Yeah, exactly. Was it, was he mentally unstable or was it caused because of the event horizon being breached? Who knows? Yeah. There's this whole thing because they were so rushed. Anderson actually went to the actors and said, Hey, I want your input on this. Come up with your character's backstory. So they got to come up with their own backstories. One of the big things they came up with were the flag, which is really odd to me. They tried to think about what the future of earth, what the flags representing the future of earth would look like. So for instance, Sam Neill, he was supposed to be Australian. And so instead of having the standard Australian flag, he actually went through and did a thing that honored Aborigines and incorporated the two together. So the flag of Australia that he has on his uniform, is not the actual flag of Australia. And they like carried that idea over into all the flags that show up. I I love Um, that. The little details sometimes are the coolest parts. You learn stuff like that. But yeah. there's other parts of the movie they might have spent a little more time on, though. <laughs> oh, sure. And even the writing. Okay. So, like, for instance, ion drives are an actual thing. Right. We have them, and they're crazy fast. I, in fact, went through and made a chart of all of the local, because, you know, where I work, I have access to, like, how fast they really are. <laughs> so I made a chart of how long it would actually take you to get to everything in the solar system if you had an ion drive humming at full speed and you could get to the moon in 15 minutes and the travel times are just cut drastically, but they take forever to accelerate. They're Ah. so slow going. And the other downside is there's no way to slow down. They can speed up an almost infinite amount, but you can't really slow them down. We missed that last galaxy. Let's try for the next one. Yeah. Here's you can't stop one. fighting or I'm turning this ion drive around. Yeah. Here they've got one. And not only can they slow it down, it can accelerate so fast. You're going to experience what they say, 90 G's. Yeah, it was. You'll turn to jelly, liquefied jelly. Wow. And, and being in a bucket of water will help. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And, uh, did the guy who did the Daredevil movie think of that? Sean Pertwee's character mentions, why do we have to be going all the way out to Uranus? We could go to Mars. At least Mars has women. And I'm thinking, again, look at your timeline, guys. Because <laughs> if we've just barely set up something on the moon, we definitely don't have people hanging out on Mars. It's okay. not actually. Whole colony. Lawrence Fishburne, though, however, does a great job playing this hard-ass commander, which two years later, he was in the Matrix. It was just like the step up for that. Because if you look at him like in Apocalypse Now, he's like this young kid. He's on the gun. He's not paying attention to anything. He's just having a good time. Right. And then you look at him in the Matrix, and it's a completely different person. It's cool to see that evolution. I remember him in Die Hard 3. He was almost the slapstick comedy aspect. Yeah. Weir hears a voice in his head and sees his dead wife with her eyes gouged out. And it's because he woke up first when the ship gets to the event horizon. And then it turns out, no, it was just a hallucination. Back to Steve's thing is that he's just crazy to start with, or was it the ship reaching out to him? And, and to bring up Europa report again, all these things we were talking about, it's a fun sci-fi movie as opposed to an accurate sci-fi movie. Uh, big difference. And, and this one really went with the common tropes in Hollywood of jump scares yes. and stuff like that. The other one totally did. Yeah, I have in here in the notes that spew forth a whole bunch of sci-fi jargon and then move on from there because that's really what this is the whole crew gets together and they have this debrief and it's really just this ex excuse for all kinds of exposition to explain stuff. So first they have introductions to everybody and the characters are so stereotypical. Their introductions <laughs> are like, yeah, I'm the guy who you're going to hate. You're going to love and you know, all this stuff. I'm like, okay, we get it. You're the party guy. That's fine. And then you have scientists that says something and then, Lawrence Fishburne comes back with a super hard-ass response. Okay, well, so we're setting the captain up as this no-nonsense, hard-ass right, guy. Right. And then the scientist's explanation, which is a whole bunch of sci-fi gobbledygook, which means nothing, and it doesn't mean anything to them even. But basically, it's, yeah, we go through this other dimension to get somewhere else here real fast. If you've seen any other sci-fi movies dealing with this type of thing, you understand it. <laughs> Move on. <laughs> 35 days before this movie came out, Contact came out, and it does the exact same kind of drive capability. Ah, interesting. But was written 30 years prior. <laughs> yeah. 40 yeah, years, yeah. something like that, yeah. And Interstellar comes out 17, 17 years later, the exact kind of drive capacity. <laughs> so the ship they're in is Lewis and Clark, and it is going to dock at the event horizon at the main airlock, they say, which happens to be airlock number 13. Oh. Why is the 13th airlock the main airlock? That makes no sense. <laughs> I love also they, when they go to dock, it's not a load bearing structure. Well, where the hell are you supposed to dock then? What was the yeah. plan? <laughs> yeah. Now, supposedly, and I didn't see it. I looked. I did look. I didn't see it. Supposedly, the model of the Event Horizon, actually one of the antenna arrays, that st there's bunches of them that stick up off there, is actually an X-Wing. Damn, now I got to go look at that scene again. I didn't see it, but apparently it's in there. Sorry, when Abrams did the Star Wars Force Awakens, he put the Batmobile on the underside of the Falcon. 
Nice. Nice. When they actually get into the bill into the ship and there's stuff floating around, one of the things floating around the background is a VHS tape. Okay, we had the capacity to get all the way to Alpha Proxima, but we still are using VHS tapes. Well, come on. Twilight Zone, Star Trek, go watch some of those episodes. <laughs> they were so into trying to make this feel real for the cast that they put magnets on the bottom of their boots. So when they were doing the magnetic oh, boot cool. things, they actually did have to Feel their foot up. Ah, that's come, um, and that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So they're doing all these realistic things, trying to make it as realistic as possible. So why did all the ships make noise when they were flying through space? <laughs> Another yeah. thing, Europa Report didn't do. Right. Lawrence Fishburne has a line when he steps in. He's like, this place is a tomb, and it's well, it's been gone for seven years. So anybody who's there is probably <laughs> dead. So. Right. <laughs> and it was really weird because he's there. There's this jump scare because he's there and this hand light comes up. Right. The glove. And he just like brushes it away. And it's if that's a severed hand in a glove, shouldn't that alarm you? What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we head down to engineering. There's this great big tunnel. They call it the meat grinder. Have you ever tried to walk through one of those? Kosai used to have one. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple places I've been to. Like it just keep wanting to lean. Yeah. You know? It really does mess with you more than you would think. The doors are all spiky. We're in zero gravity. Let's put big spikes on the wall. I was like, what the heck is that for? Other than it looks cool in a horror movie. The original drive was supposed to be this big, smooth, black, liquidy orb. Okay. But Anderson decided to change it in a nod to Hellraiser. Yeah, and and so that's why it looks the way it did. And like I said, Clive Barker was actually consulted on the production during the setup for the whole thing. The architecture for the ship, when they mapped it all out, it was modeled after Notre Dame Cathedral. Wow, pre-burning. Yeah, yeah, pre-fire. So my question though is, and maybe the science really supports this: to achieve some sort of wormhole faster than light travel do you really have to have a gyroscope because there's a million other movies and stories where it's always a gyroscope drive always <laughs> yeah i don't know the whole concept of the gyroscope is really fascinating just because once you're actually in zero g's the gyroscope always stays upright anyways it keeps its orientation right. so it doesn't seem to be affected because it's creating its own gravity and i think just that whole idea everybody seems to like playing with it for yeah some <laughs> It'd be even the event horizon with the, the circle. I'm like, Stargate did that also. Yeah, I think Stargate, no, Stargate was before this. So again, the, every all of this felt rehashed from many other things. Yeah. And it really is. It's one of those kind of things like, so that one guy's in engineering, DJ's in engineering, and the thing lines up and the portal opens and there's like this liquid stuff sitting there and he sticks his hand in it. What kind of moron? Oh, I wonder what this stuff is. And he just sticks his hand in. Right. And then there's this massive power surge. Everything's on fire. And the Lewis and Clark is like in all bad shape. And everything. Yeah, of course, it had to be. They had to yeah. somehow lose their way home easily. The kid from engineering, he's catatonic. The one guy says he saw something and Weir is like defensive right off the bat yeah. about, yeah. hey, don't mess with this. There's strange noises in the sick bay and 
the one lady goes over and there's her son in the tent with all kinds of lesions on his legs. So that's the concept behind behind the thing is that this portal opens up, you go somewhere near to hell and something came back on board the ship and it can read your mind and screw with your head so that we're seeing horrible things. Right. So hell really is sinister. No, I'm not sin- with the Cenobites. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Wrong <Not> sin. Sinister. <laughs> yeah. And the funny thing is how many times people figure this out throughout the movie. Yeah. Like Stark figures it out right off the bat and nobody's listening to her. Eventually the captain figures it out. <laughs> nobody's by then it's too late. People are already like injured or dead. And, and I think um, that's where it starts. I, I honestly, that whole part of it with them not figuring it out and not listening, blah, blah, that was a lot less realistic to me than even the noises of ships in space and some of the other things, just because it's come on. And again, 97 was a different era in movies, but it, it was just like, come on. It's, it's doing it just to drag it out. So I started to think about that. I was like, yeah, this was done in 97. But then I thought there were good movies that came out oh, around absolutely. that time. Yeah. Even good hor- seven. Yeah. An amazing movie, an amazing horror movie for you to watch. And it doesn't feel over the top or there's not like plot holes for you to fall into just to keep the movie moving forward. You know what I mean? Yeah. And contrast it with Europa report. That it never felt like it was contriving anything just to move the story. They it seemed to go in a very logical pace of how they figured things out and did things, at least from a movie watcher viewpoint. So now let's start to compare the two movies. We could go through and scene by scene with Event Horizon, but we don't really need to. Everybody starts dying, things keep blowing up, and bad things happen. And go watch. Uh, Hellraiser and play Doom and you'll put it all together. <laughs> Captain sacrifices himself to save everybody else. Which, okay, if we're going to talk realism, whose idea was it to take this massive football length or longer ship, put explosives on the very long metal bridge so it separates the two parts so you have so much debris flying around, the chances of any ship surviving and getting away are none. Yeah, we don't have any better way to uncouple the front with the back other than blow stuff up. That's exactly, I said the same thing. I said, there's no better way to do this. I'm watching this going, that would destroy whatever ship was in front. Whatever ship was docked, it would just, everything, so much debris would be flying around. Yeah. The other thing that I really think is funny is that they blow it up and they're like in the upper atmosphere of was it uranus yeah it was uranus yeah, yeah. In the upper atmosphere and they blow it up and the drive side gets pulled down but the top side doesn't uh, it like gets to escape that massive gravity I'm not took, exactly sure how that worked the only thing i took there was that the lat back half had that connection to hell and it hell was reaching out and sucking it back down <laughs> That was the only thing I could use to explain that also. Hell is very heavy. 
<laughs> so the heavy part of it falls back to the planet. Yeah. I, and how much atmosphere does Uranus really have? Does that look like a lot of clouds there? Oh, it's nothing but gas. It's a okay. giant gas. It's I, a gas I, I giant. really wasn't sure. I knew it was, but I didn't know how much it really had in the floating around. Yeah. You don't get to anything that's even vaguely solid until you pass crushing depth. So to compare the two movies, they both start with an E and they both have five syllables in their name. We're going deep, folks. Really deep. <laughs> Event Horizon Europa Report. That was so, probably on purpose, I'm sure. So between the two, I think the biggest difference between the two is that you have Event Horizon, which was a big studio film that was written to be a horror story set in space. And with Europa Report, you have a small independent film that was written to explore some horror theme, but it was much more about the space travel than it was the actual horror story. I could, yeah, I agree with that. And so I went in and I started researching, actually started finding interviews with Philip Galat and Sebastian Cordero. And Galat wrote Europa Report and Cordero directed it. And uh, between the two, the, I'm sorry, it's Gillette, it's not Galat, it's Gillette. Between the two, Philip Gillette actually spoke more about the story and how it was built. Cordero was talking much more about the actual movie itself. For instance, one of the things that he said was that he wanted an international cast and he wanted good actors, but not necessarily big stars. And if you contrast that with Event Horizon, they went through and got big names, not as big as they were even aiming for. And I'm not saying that those actors aren't good, but the, the, seat filling capacity the capability of them was far more important to Anderson than how well that actor actually fit the role. Yeah, I, I can see that. And that's one of the nice things about you could argue one of the nice things about a smaller budget and uh, lesser known actors, because a lot of times whoever you get is going to be happy to get the, the gig. And a lot of times they may yeah. even work harder for it. Yeah. Look at Boyega when he did Attack the Block. He was fantastic. And then he went on to be in Star Wars. And we said the same thing about Attack the Block, how the lesser known cast allowed us to enjoy the movie better than seeing all these actors. Oh, look, he should be chasing dinosaurs. And shouldn't he be fighting Kung Fu with Keanu Reeves? And the worst thing would have been if they got Tom Cruise for the movie. You know, that. Some of the other things like Gillette and Cordero when Gillette was writing it and Cordero was directing Europa report, they like did serious research. Both the guys went to JPL to talk to the people there. And in fact, Cordero interviewed one of the astronauts who did the repair on Hubble. Oh, cool. And while he was doing the repair, his glove got ripped. And so that whole scene where they're out in space and the guy's suit gets ripped, they actually talked to an astronaut where, Hey, that actually happened to him. How do you react with that? So, <laughs> pure panic. 
Hopefully I don't care how much training you got. There's uh, some panic in that. I am so high above the earth. I see each edge of the planet yeah. and I'm losing my only air source. Yeah. Gillette went to JPL and interviewed the scientists. And he said something in, in the interview he was in. I'm paraphrasing here, but I've come across the same thing when I was in college talking to scientists. They are they can be some of the most for lack of a better word, stupid smart people you'll ever meet because they're into their science. And that's the only thing that's important to him. He went and he interviewed these scientists and he said, if we had the capabilities for a one-way trip to Europa, would you go? And they were all like, absolutely, we would be there. And I'm like, wow, I don't see myself making that sacrifice. (laughs) I'll look at the pictures they sent. That's nice. Yes, absolutely. So they did a lot of research to this. To be fair to Anderson and Eisner, I don't think they had time to do research. And, and Paramount that, was pushing this. And honestly, that wasn't really the goal from the storytelling. I think it'd be the best excuse ever. Yeah, I'm writing a book about really fast race cars. Let's go drive some. That, yeah. That'd be my excuse all the freaking time. But they, their goal was totally different than Europa Report. You, you don't necessarily have to have every bit of the science down perfect. You don't have to show everything on the screen completely realistic. That's not why people are going to a big blockbuster popcorn movie. Right. And it would, it would ruin that type of movie, too. Actually. And I think Event Horizon, Eisner set off to do The Shining in space. And what he ended up with was Hellraiser in space. Yeah, it did have shining aspects. A little bit where you have the ghosts of people like running around and you're chasing them and it leads you to a bad end kind of deal. <laughs> but it did, it, it did have the psychological stuff behind it, but it also really drove itself on the horror and the gore. Again, it was like a horror movie that just so happened to be in space. And, and that's exactly you know, and the difference is it was a big blockbuster it, sci-fi-ish horror-ish put together uh, a few influences on other things. Whereas Europa Report, they wanted to do something very sci-fi, not even sci-fi, very techy, sciencey. And the crew itself wasn't going out to be horror. They were really trying to make it look like really going to visit. And the way they used the found footage in that one to give the horror aspects, it worked well. They didn't go over the top with any. of Yes, they didn't. Now, now here's where we're going to talk about Europa Report in a little different light than we did when it originally aired. The interview that I found with Gillette, and I wish I remembered so I could properly cite my source, and I'm sorry, guys, if you ever come across this, then I'm not giving you a plug. But it was a group of authors and editors who had a podcast, and they were fans of Lovecraft. Okay. And they had Gillette there as uh, as like a special guest to interview him. And Gillette is a big Lovecraft fan. Which totally and makes sense in that movie's perspective. When he was writing Europa Report, he, his concept was, what if you had people who faced the big giant emptiness of cosmic horror, but they didn't lose their minds? They actually could keep their shit together through the entire experience. 
And so when he wrote Europa Report, that was the angle he was coming in. And it happens in two different locations in the movie. At one point in time, you had the junior engineer who is looking at the vastness of space. That is going to be his home for the next two hours before he just finally dies, <laughs> which, I mean, if that's not horrifying, I'm not exactly sure what is. Right. And then you had the end where you have, we're on an alien planet. There's some alien life that is coming after us. We have absolutely no hope of getting off of here. Not unlike the kind of thing that you would run into if you're reading a Lovecraftian story. Yeah. Now that you say that, I totally can see that if Lovecraft uh, wrote sci-fi in the 50s, Europa Report would probably be (laughs) what he'd write. Yeah. Yeah. He was big on, they head somewhere dangerous, discover some new exciting information, but nobly give their lives in an effort to get the information back to the rest of us. If you ask him about how he would classify Europa Report, he says it's a cross between Lovecraftian horror and hard science fiction. Now that you say that, that, endears that to me even more because it i totally see it i didn't yeah. pick up but yeah absolutely and on the one hand event horizon it was an important film because it did go on to have further influences and it wasn't an important film that's the problem it sits like in the middle when you take a look at buffy the vampire slayer the movie it was an important film because it went on basically define an entire new genre of television serial. But the movie was ridiculous and over the top. Yes. They Which knew is actually what when, I loved about it. <laughs> they knew it when they shot it and they embraced it. Event Horizon was uh, big and it redefined that whole space horror concept. It was no longer about like aliens. It was something far more diabolical behind it. It wasn't just, if you watch Alien, a good movie, you basically have this entity that's smart and it's you against it. And it's just doing what it does. Event Horizon ushered into, no, there's evil in space. And that really took over a lot between especially in video games. You see it a lot in video games with doom and that stuff. And like you said, dead space, but they didn't embrace it. They still seemed like they were trying to do a serious movie. And I think that's where it misses. I agree. And and what you're saying about from the historical aspect and how it's where it started from that. That's very true. And that, that gives it enough credit worthiness for some respect and all that, regardless of movies since then have done a lot of those things better, but that's how it always is. The first one isn't going to hold up compared to the guys that come after it necessarily, but I I can definitely see that because I mentioned Armageddon. Armageddon is an action flick. It's, it's just set in space and and ID four, another one where there could be a whole lot of bad science in that, but nobody really cared. It, it was wasn't a- why people on the one hand it's I hate this whole concept of rebooting stuff, which 
in our society is in because nobody wants to finance anything unless they know it's going to be a big (laughs) winner. On the other hand, I would love to see what would happen if you took Event Horizon and you like redid it and you gave people time and you gave people enough advisors to be like, it's not just a horror movie. It's a sci-fi movie. And if it was redone, even with a smaller budget, I, I think it, it would, it could, it had potential to work really well. Yeah, I could see that. I could see someone doing a really good reboot of this yeah. and doing well. That'd be interesting. The, the one other comment uh, that made me chuckle was the whole video they got with all the, all that going on. That yeah. was some absolutely fantastic filters to clean it up that much. I'm like, that- Wow. <laughs> So, I don't know what this says about me, but if you've watched enough horror movies, you'll get to these scenes in movies like Event Horizon where they just do these pile-on quick cuts of horrible things. And I always like to slow them down so I can actually see what's in there. And this movie is great for that. If you really like just ignoring the movie, if you're just looking for the visuals, there are lots of times where they just pile on these quick takes and you can sit there and you can pause it from frame to frame. And there's a lot of striking imagery that they just throw in there that flies by a third of a second. Right. Um, and it, it's the art school in me where you, you really want to appreciate those shots. Somebody went to the work of, and in the closing spot, like there's this shot of this woman on a cross type thing with barbed wire and like her face is somehow mutilated and it pans back and it's panning back through a corpse that's hanging in front of her and you're seeing it through a hole in someone's body. Yeah. And it's just like, that was a hell of a lot of work for something that went by so fast. You really couldn't recognize what was there. And and I think, for those types of things, the big fast collage like that, they really have to get super detailed and make them super fantastic. So they stick out because they know it's only going to be shown for a fraction. It's enough to put you on edge and unnerve you, but not because if you study it, it's like all the monsters. Like we said with attack the block, how great the monsters look, but we also didn't see them close up slow motion uh, in 20 million different scenes. It's right. little bits here and there. And that's almost always been the best horror movies, even to this day, because yeah. it loses some of that horrific aspect if it's on the screen too long. Books yeah. are different. And that was one of the things that, because when that last big flash went up, I slowed down those things and started looking through it. And I'm looking at these shots of what hell is like. This is what Dr. Weir, the devil, is showing to the captain. And he's, this is hell. And he's showing these shots. And I'm like, oh my gosh, half of these shots are people who are still alive in the front part of the ship. And, and I never made that connection when I saw it before because it happened so fast. Then the captain says something and he's like, those people are still alive and the devil like laughs it off. Uh-huh, they won't be for long, you know, that kind of thing. But it's much more impactful when you're like, oh, he just showed him all kinds of horrific things about these people but it's not actually happening to him. He's like showing them his intent. Yeah. The future or 
Hey, you want to start talking in an alternate dimension? It is happening. It is. Ha- yes. It's Schrodinger's cat. It's happening yeah. and it's not all at the same right, time. Right. Schrodinger's devil. Yeah. Cordero, when he directed Europa report, because he wanted the whole thing to feel like these people are in this ship, he put the actors on set and then sealed the ship set. <laughs> so they were actually in there with just each other. And the cameras were all fixed. It's like right, that right. footage type thing. So he would just give them direction via intercom. So the entire time they were shooting, they were actually in there, like living together as a wow. group of people. And it's that kind of immersion. I think that I don't want to say that your event horizon wasn't immersion filled when stuff catches fire because it's on fire and <laughs> explosions knock out your actors. That's <laughs> pretty immersed. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a very different feel than like actually being sealed into a space for an extended now, period of time. Now to really bring that feeling to Europa report, they should have sealed it and suspended it. Okay. We'll be back tomorrow. Good night, everybody. You stay in the capsule. <laughs> we'll let you know when we're filming. They had one of the actresses uh, in the interview with Cordero. She was there and they were talking about the zero G thing. A lot of it, they would put people on wire, but they would also put them on yoga balls that they had painted green screen color. So they'd be like sitting on the yoga balls. And then to help them, they had people who were in morph suits, completely green morph suits would like hold their leg and stuff like that when it was in a position that they couldn't actually do in gravity. So there were like these morph suit invisible people like running around that's horrific itself what if there are like shadow people running around but we have a green screen filter in our site so they can stay hidden from that's actually a pretty good idea for a story (laughs) if that's the case then i wish they would you know stop things like my cat knocking my drink over on my desk and stuff like that well maybe they scared do something (laughs) cool all right hey there's a event horizon Wait, I do have one more thing. I looked over at my notes. So when Justin was in the airlock, they had the alarms and stuff going off and he came back to normal. So I'm thinking, oh, they're going to use like the bells, like with Venom and get rid of this thing. They're going to fight back for it. And that never came up again. So I thought, okay, writers, that was dumb to put that in. Other than now you get to see Justin almost die. That's horrific. But why the hell is this? on a, a delay, but it starts leaking air before it actually opens because he starts decompressing and stuff for 15 seconds. It's like slow and gruesome. There's two or three spots in here where I'm like, decompression doesn't work that way. <laughs> As we've discussed, that's not how this works. What, what's pert we say? Oh, if he goes out there, it's going to turn him inside out. Really? Yeah, no, not really. <laughs> yeah. He's just got blood running from his eyes, veins all bulging out. Oh, I, I don't, everything I have heard, that's not really how this happened. Okay, we got it. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Cool. All right, so this will be a bonus episode. We'll get on our schedule like we were talking about, get it out soon, and then we'll get on to season three. What's season three? I forget. Season three, all the horror movies are based on culture clashes. Ooh, and that being said it might not come as a surprise every season so far we've had some lighter heart light-hearted 
type of horror movies, you will not have those in season three. Oh, um, no, no comedy with culture clashes. No, not so much. People tend to take this stuff pretty serious. <laughs> if we have a good zombie werewolf vampire movie that, that could have had. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, just by your reaction, I know where that's going. Okay. <laughs> All right. We'll look forward to that and we'll start getting them out. Yep. Cool. Later, man. Take it easy. Creature slips from perception. Pay attention. It will rise again.